0: Well, we are continuing this morning with our study through the book of Acts. Uh, today, we are looking at Acts chapter 20, verses 28 through 38. These verses take place at the end of Paul's third missionary journey. He is actually on his way back to Jerusalem, and he's hoping to get there in time for the Feast of Pentecost. He knows he doesn't have time to actually visit Ephesus again, uh, so instead he stops in the coastal town of uh, of Miletus, where his ship Lands there and um, sends word for the elders of the church of Ephesus to come and meet with him there. Altogether, we know that Paul spent three years ministering in Ephesus. He spoke in the synagogue there for three months until he received significant opposition from some of the Jews. At that point, he led those who were believers to make an official break with the synagogue and begin church. They met in a lecture hall where Paul was able to preach and teach on a daily basis. And as a result, we are told that all who were in the province of Asia, both Jews and Greeks alike, actually heard the word of the Lord. The Lord worked in mighty ways through Paul. Many people were healed of sickness, of disease. Many were delivered from evil spirits that that they were possessed by. When some Jewish exorcist tried to imitate Paul's ministry, they were beaten to a pulp by one evil spirit, through the man that that spirit possessed. And through all of this, we're told that the fear of the Lord fell on the people of Ephesus. A number of young believers came to see that their involvement in sorcery and divination was wrong, convicted of that. And so they brought their very expensive magic books out. They burned them as part of their repentance. God was doing and had accomplished, and because Kent was continuing to do an amazing work in Ephesus, I mean, as the kingdom of God was advancing, what that also means is the kingdom of Satan was being attacked. The temple of Artemis was located in Ephesus. It was, has been described as one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Ephesus was considered the guardian of Artemis. So the worship of this idol, this mythical goddess, had a dominating influence on Ephesian culture and really Asian culture in general. Much of their life, their economy, revolved around this idolatrous worship. Demetrius was a silversmith in Ephesus, and much of his prophets were connected with making shrines and things of that sort in honor, in connection with uh, the worship of Artemis. And in fact, that was true of many of the craftsmen of the city. So Demetrius got them roused up about the gospel message of Paul that God was using to turn people away from that foolish idolatry to faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Well, a mob of people gathered in the theater there. Many were swept up into the emotion of the event and had no idea what was going on. But for two hours straight, we are told that they all shattered, sh- shouted together, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. They bonded together in their worship of their false goddess. Ultimately, cooler heads prevailed, and the mob was dispersed, and soon after that, Paul actually left for Macedonia so he could encourage the churches that had been started there in previous missionary journeys. But we can easily see that the ministry in Ephesus had been a truly significant one. Ephesus was a key city in Asia. So Paul wanted to meet with the elders of this church one final time before he left for Jerusalem. His message to the Ephesian elders actually begins in verse 18 of chapter 20, and Paul began that by reminding them of what his ministry had been like when he was with them. He does this several times in this message. Reminds them of things that he had said and done. This is probably because there were Jews who were questioning Paul's ministry, uh, questioning his integrity, with hopes of convincing the believers to reject Paul, to reject his message. But Paul says, "You, you know, you remember what my ministry was like. You yourselves were there. You heard and you saw." He spoke of the fact that all he did, he did as a servant of the Lord. He served with tears as he agonized over the unbelief of many of the Jews, the idolatry of the Greeks. He endured plots that were instigated by the Jews. But these trials didn't keep him from fully declaring the word of God to them. He didn't shrink back, he says, from declaring to them the whole purpose of God. That included speaking of the need for repentance toward God, that included speaking of the need for faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. These were things that were greatly profitable, of course, to unbelievers to bring them, necessary to unbelievers to bring them to Christ. But they were also greatly profitable and continue to be greatly profitable for those who've been Christians for a while. There's a continual need for repentance and faith that uh, we continue uh, to apply in our lives. Well, Paul shared with them of his commitment to go to Jerusalem. The Holy Spirit had compelled him to do this. The Spirit also made it clear that there were bonds and afflictions awaiting him. That was not a big concern for Paul. We're going to see it's a big concern for others uh, in the coming weeks. But it was not a big concern for Paul. His purpose in life was to glorify the Lord. He had been given this ministry to the Jews, but even more particularly to the Gentile people, He has no doubt about the fact that his life really counts for something. The Lord is using him to build his church, to build his kingdom. And that has eternal significance. So Paul's goal is not to live as long as he can. His goal is to glorify God in his life and in the opportunities that are available to him to serve. And he's aware that there's really no greater purpose in life than that. Well, then Paul turns his attention to exhorting the elders. Paul loves the church. He loves the church because he loves the Lord Jesus Christ, who's the head of the church. You really can't love Christ and not also love his church. Paul knows from experience that there's going to be challenges. There's going to be difficulties ahead for the Ephesian church. He not only has significant challenges himself in Ephesus, but he has had significant challenges really everywhere that he's gone. I mean, the gospel is good news for sinners, but it's bad news for those who stubbornly choose to remain in their sin and rebellion against God. And so those who stubbornly choose to live in unbelief will sometimes become active and even hostile enemies to the church, to the gospel. Well, in light of those realities, Paul gives this charge to the Ephesian elders that begins in verse 28. He says, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock, "...among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore be on the alert, remembering that night and day, for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one of you with tears." And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I have coveted no one's silver or gold or clothes. You yourselves know that these hands minister to my own needs and to the men who were with me. In everything, I showed you that by working hard in this manner, you must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he himself said, It is more blessed to give than to receive. When he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them, and they began to weep aloud and embraced Paul and repeatedly kissed him, grieving especially over the word that he had spoken that they would not see his face again. And they were accompanying him to the ship. Two main things that I want to give attention to this morning. First is the fact of just that the church is of, is of such great importance to God. And we see a number of things here that just emphasize how important the church is to God. And second, because the church is so important, the Lord sees to it that his church is cared for. So first main point is this. The Lord makes it very clear that the church is of the highest priority for him. The church is of the highest priority for him. So as Paul begins his charge to the elders, he makes really some remarkable claims about the church in verse 28. Again, he says, be on guard for yourselves, for all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Now, before we get to the specific exhortations that he's giving there to the elders, I want us to consider some things that he said about the church. First, Paul tells us that the church is a flock that belongs to God. The church is a flock that belongs to God. Paul says the church is like a flock, really a flock of sheep that need to be looked after. And there's a number of times, of course, that the scripture describes uh, us as sheep. Before our conversion, we are described in Isaiah 53, 6 as sheep that have gone astray. Of course, sheep are prone to wander off unless they are watched closely by the shepherd. So we are all each inclined to go our own direction, which is opposite of what the great shepherd wants us to do. We disobey his laws. We think that our ways of looking at things are better than what his ways are. We don't want to get hemmed in by what he says is right and what he says is wrong. So before salvation, we are all like sheep who have gone astray. But then Jesus speaks again of us as sheep in John chapter 10. He talks about being like sheep who hear his voice comparing sheep to believers who hear the voice of their shepherd. So he, so what he does as our shepherd, he grants us the faith to believe that his word is true. He grants us the faith to believe that salvation is in the name of Jesus Christ. And as believers, we continue then to have a desire to hear and understand his word in the scriptures. We know that sheep know and recognize the voice of their particular shepherd and therefore will follow their particular shepherd. So Jesus uses that to kind of point out the fact that those who have received Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior hear Christ and his word and follow him. And he also describes Christians as belonging to, uh, as being the sheep of his pasture. So we belong really to the Lord himself. He's the good shepherd as opposed to a hired hand who doesn't have a personal interest in the sheep. Christ is the good shepherd, he says, who lays down his life for his sheep. Well, that ties into the fact that Paul speaks of the church as the church of God. The church doesn't belong to the elders. The church doesn't belong to a particular denomination. The church belongs to God. It is God who has called out his church from the foundation of the world. Everyone who believes in Christ for salvation is one of God's elect that he chose and predestined for salvation. In his letter to the Ephesians, chapter 1, Paul says, God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself. So the church belongs to God because he set his love on each believer from all eternity. The church also belongs to God because He's the one responsible for our salvation. He not only chose us, but He also sent His Son to accomplish the salvation that everyone that He chose needed. Salvation is of the Lord. He purposed salvation. Christ accomplished the salvation when He came to earth as a man. The Holy Spirit applies that accomplished salvation to all that God has chosen. He calls us to hear the voice of the shepherd, Savior, and come to him in faith. So salvation is of the Lord. Therefore, the church is a flock that belongs to God. In that same vein, Paul also makes it clear next that the church has been purchased by the blood of God himself. The blood of God himself. The end of verse 28 tells us God purchased the church with his own blood. This is just a further example of the fact that salvation is of the Lord. It's not of man. Our sin is against God. He is the one who made us. It's his laws that reveal how we're supposed to live. So the reason sin is sin is because God is holy, righteous, and just. And the wages of sin is death. We have no hope of living up to God's holy standards. So we are all sentenced to endure his righteous judgment unless God himself intervenes, and he did. The Son of God took on human flesh so that he could represent sinful men and women. He took on human flesh so he could suffer and die as a man. On the cross, he suffered and bled and died to endure the wrath of God that we deserve. Well, this work of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, that is God. Purchasing his church with his own blood. Peter said it this way, "We're not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from the feudal way of life inherited from our forefathers, but we're redeemed with precious blood, as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ." Well, these two truths make it very clear that the church is of the highest priority to God. The church is a flock. That belongs to God. And the church has been purchased. Every member has been purchased by the blood of God himself. And those are just like mind-boggling truths. It's the grace of God really just on full display. Well, furthermore, then we move to our second point. Paul makes it clear in these verses that God sees to it that his church is cared for. This is his church. He cares for his church. So we see how eternally valuable the church is, eternity past, eternity future, how eternally valuable the church is to God and should be to us. Well, the things that God has done to see that his church is cared for continue to speak of its eternal importance. First, we see in verse 28 that God the Spirit provides elders shepherds overseers for his church. Paul uses three different terms to describe the ones that God has given authority in the church. Uh, Back in verse 17, at the very beginning of all this taking place, we are told that Paul sent for the elders of the church. In verse 28, he calls them overseers. In verse 28, he also speaks of them as shepherds. Three different terms that all refer to the same group of people. The term elder literally speaks of a person who is older, but the term came to refer more to a person's maturity in the faith. It also speaks of authority that the person is given to fulfill the role. And the fact that there were multiple elders in the church at Ephesus is an example to us of the plurality of elders um, in, ch- in local churches. term overseer is the Greek word episkopos. It speaks of one who watches over, one who gives leadership. And, of course, you can hear the word Episcopal in that Greek word for overseer. The Episcopal church and other denominations as well organize themselves by having people who oversee certain regions and the churches contained within those regions. But that's really not at all how Paul uses the word here. He's not separating these into different groups It's just another word to describe the function of the elders who oversee a particular local church. They are the episcopos over that individual church in Ephesus, and really it applies to local churches uh, beyond just Ephesus. The third word is the word shepherd, which is equivalent to our word for pastor. It has to do with knowing the sheep, providing the help and instruction they need, protecting from those who would do harm to the flock. So God provides these elders shepherds overseers to give watch care, to give leadership to his churches. Paul actually says in verse 28 that it was the Holy Spirit who made them to be overseers. So it's God's work to see that his church is cared for. Well, how does that happen? How does the Holy Spirit make one an overseer or make one an elder? Well... The Holy Spirit does call men to serve as elders or as pastors. Paul describes that calling really in a very simple way in 1 Timothy 3.1 when he says, it's a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it's a fine work he desires to do. This is called a trustworthy statement. And there is a list of trustworthy statements that the early church had that would speak of different aspects of their faith and practice that they they held to. Well, in this case, we hear from this trustworthy statement that the early church understood that if a man aspired to the office of overseer, that was evidence of God's calling on their life. But there's more to it than that. It doesn't stop with that. Because the verses following that verse in 1 Timothy 3 give about 15 Characteristics that are supposed to be true of the person who feels called to this role, and it's the role then of the church to make the determination on whether the person is qualified to serve as an elder. So, so a person doesn't become an elder just because he has a desire to. That's important, but the church is, is is to confirm that call. It has to be confirmed by the people, and in the case of the Ephesian elders, as an apostle. We know that Paul had a key role in appointing these men and their positions just like he did in other churches. We've seen that before, where Paul had a key role in appointing different elders in the local churches. I believe he would work in con- conjunction with the congregation as he did that. Well, we no longer have apostles in the church who go around making appointments, you know, and who's going to do what. Instead, what takes place now and, we, and uh, is that we have fellow ministers who generally examine a person who feels they are called to serve as an elder, a pastor, whatever, and to make a judgment there. This is often called ordination. Well, each of these things are important, but we need to keep in mind that according to Paul, it is the Spirit of God who is using each of these things to call out spiritual leaders for his churches. So it's the Holy Spirit who sees that the church is cared for by providing elders for his church. Next, we're told that the elders are called upon to be on guard for themselves in their walk with the Lord. Be on guard for themselves. That's the first thing Paul says in his exhortation to the Ephesian elders in verse 28. Be on guard for yourselves. So the elders need to take heed to what's being taught, to what the trends are in the culture are, to what's going on in the church, what's going on in the body. And to do this, he says they need to watch over their own walk with the Lord. They need to be watch over their own prayer life, their own time in the scriptures, their personal application of the scriptures. their giving time to study, dealing with temptation, being faithful to their wives, waging their children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, and so forth. John Stott said, if a man cannot adequately care for his own soul, then they surely can't be expected to care adequately for the soul of someone else. So that's what's behind this idea of watch over yourselves, guard yourselves. So the Lord wants the elders to be sure that they do that. Next we see the elders are called to be on guard for those in the flock the Lord has given them. So Paul then follows up on that exhortation to be on guard for yourselves by saying, you're to be on guard for all the flock. As well, well, Paul continues here obviously to use the imagery of shepherding, like a flock of sheep, and we can think of a flock of sheep maybe grazing in a pasture that the shepherd has selected because it's going to give them the nourishment that they need. The shepherd is going to be watching the sheep to make sure they don't stray off into dangerous places. He's watching for thieves. He's watching for other animals that might try to do harm to the sheep. And in a sense, the job of that shepherd is, is, is never really over. There's there's an ongoing responsibility there. Well, in similar ways, the elders are called to be on guard for the flock, to be on guard for the local church. And specifically, it's the flock in which the elder has been called as the overseer. He knows who his flock is. It's the members of his particular local church. The elders need to be aware of the things that the members of the flock are dealing with. They need to regularly feed the flock with the word of God, instructing them in sound doctrine. There are times where there needs to be reproof. There's times where there needs to be admonishment. There's a a need to take note of errors that can can prove to be dangerous. There are times when the steps of church discipline need to be applied. All these things are tied into guarding the flock. And the elders are not supposed to do these things with an air of pride or superiority. I mean, like Paul said of his ministry, and he's really giving himself as an example here in a good way for them and, and for all of us who would serve in this way. In his ministry, Paul really points out the fact that all that he did, he did out of a, out of a service to the Lord, and therefore that caused him to, to have a sense of humility that he was serving the Lord. It wasn't because he was such a great guy. It's because he had such a great God that he was serving. So there's not a place for pride there. And we need to recognize that it's God's flock that we're serving. We need to recognize that, as, that, that, that it's, the, it's the Holy Spirit who has made one to be an overseer. We need to remember that the people that we serve were all purchased by the blood of God himself. And so this is another key way that God sees to it that his church is cared for. Then Paul gets a little more specific about some things that the elders need to be aware of. This is in verses 29 to 30. He says, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. So, here Paul says that the elders and the church are to be on guard against wolves, on guard against wolves who will seek to do great harm to believers. And Paul says he knew this was going to happen. Now, he knew this either possibly the uh, the, the Spirit gave him insight, gave him understanding that this was going to happen, Or he could just know from the fact that it had happened multiple times before and he knew it was going to keep on happening. Um, And of course, we're going to see in a minute, Jesus actually said the same thing. So so he warns him. He says, I know this is going to happen. I know this is reality. Now the wolf, of course, is the natural enemy of of sheep. The wolves Paul is speaking of would be characterized uh, by the idea of being false teachers. People, they may raise doubts about the authority of Scripture. They may distort the doctrine of the, the, the gospel, the doctrine of salvation, by faith alone, in Christ alone, by God's grace alone. They may challenge the doctrine of the Trinity. Just teaching things that would undercut and ultimately destroy a Christian's faith. Paul says some of these wolves will come from outside and enter the church. Others, he said, will arise from within the church, or possibly even from within these elders themselves. That's why Paul called on these men to be on guard for yourselves, and for the flock. These dangers are very, very real. Jesus gave this warning when he was doing uh, his Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7, 25, and he expounds on this, but I'm just going to share this one verse. He says, Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. So this is the exact same warning that Jesus gave. It's interesting me, to me to compare Paul's warning here to some things he wrote in his letter to the Ephesians. In the letter to the Ephesians, in chapters 1, 2, and 3, Paul takes, uh, takes time to write about key doctrines of the Christian faith. Really, I mean, significant doctrines. He speaks much of the gospel. He speaks of the fact that God has brought Jew and Gentile together as one new man in Christ. Just a number of things that are in those uh, those first three chapters. Well, then in chapter 4, as Paul begins to make applications from these teachings, one of the first things he says as far as applications that believers should make based on these doctrines is... Be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Be diligent to preserve the unity and the bond of peace. I think it's interesting to ask this question. Is his warning to the elders to be on the lookout for false teachers coming into the church consistent with this? Is his warning that the false teachers could arise from within the church consistent with preserving the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace? It is consistent. Unity in the church is much more than just being nice to each other. Just getting along. We have the same Lord. We hold to the same Christian faith. We believe in the same Bible. And when there are challenges to those things, we need to be on the alert. We need to be on guard. I mean, great harm has been done to churches. Great harm has been done to whole denominations, to individual Christians who have not stood firm in their faith. They have been led astray by wolves. Probably most everyone, all of us in this room, know of people who would fit in that category. And it's really, really sad. And that's why... why, Paul is saying, and again the Lord is saying here through Paul, guard yourselves. These things are important. Yes, preserve the unity. But the unity is based on the truth of the word of God, the gospel. It's based on that. It's not saying, well, you're okay. We don't want to cause a fuss here. No, Paul says, you guys are going to have to cause a fuss sometimes. You're going to have to do that sometimes. So, be on guard. God loves his church. I mean, he provides for his church. So this is a sober warning against those who would, who would speak what he calls perverse things, seeking to draw disciples after them. So he says, watch, be careful, be on the alert. To further illustrate God's care for his church, we see that the Lord has given the word. The Lord has given the word of his grace to build up believers and assure them of their eternal inheritance. Verse 31 and 32. Therefore be on the alert, remembering that night and day, and for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. And now I commend you to to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who were sanctified. So Paul reemphasizes the need to be alert there at the beginning of verse 31. Again, these are huge issues, and we know that there were problems that did arise in the Ephesian church. At some point, we know that Paul left Timothy there to serve as pastor of the Ephesian church. Well, in Paul's letters to Timothy, Paul warns Timothy about men who would fit in this category. He warns him about men who would teach strange doctrines. He warns Timothy about people who turn aside from sound doctrine to fruitless discussion. He warns Timothy about people who have suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. He warns Timothy about people who go after worldly fables. He warns Timothy about people who have wandered away from the faith because of their love for money. And that just kind of goes on and on. He continues to give Timothy those kinds of warnings. It's a huge issue and no one is exempt from this call to be on guard for our faith. In verse 32, Paul commends them to God and to the word of his grace because that will build them up. To commend is like uh, to commit something for safekeeping. The word of grace would speak of the doctrine of salvation as it's revealed in the scriptures. So to guard against false doctrines and the philosophies of men, we are supposed to continue to call the truths of the gospel to mind. We're supposed to regularly remember, for example, the fact that that, that there is one true God who is the God of perfect holiness and justice, as well as the God of infinite mercy and grace. We remember that we deserve his wrath because of our sin. We remember that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, endured the wrath of God on the cross as our substitute, as our propitiation, as the Bible describes it. We must never forget those things. And, and really, as we sing it in our psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, we are continuing to remind ourselves and remind each other. I don't know if you realize, but we did this this morning, multiple times. I'm just going to give you a few examples. We sang together. Praise Him, praise Him, Jesus our blessed Redeemer. And then we uh, sang things related to thanking Him because He is our blessed Redeemer. We sang those things together. We sang of the holy, only, begotten Son of God who is the Ancient of Days. We sang of that this morning. We sang, I want to know you. I want to know the power of the cross. I want to know the glory of your resurrection. We sang of standing at the throne of grace where the blood of Jesus covers up. That is all just basic Christian doctrine. That's all it is. And we're supposed to never forget it. We're supposed to constantly remind ourselves and remind each other of those basic truths. One of the most important things we can do. And I think that's part of the the word of his grace which is able to build us up to constantly encourage us, to keep us where we need to do. That's a responsibility we have. To give regular attention to the word of the Lord, to give regular attention to the scriptures. God is going to use his word to build us up in our faith. He uses his word to assure us of the eternal inheritance that we have in Christ. The word of God, the gospel, reminds us that every believer is sanctified or set apart in Christ. We are set apart from sin to righteousness. We are set apart from being a, we are transformed from being a slave of sin to being a slave of righteousness, a servant of Christ. So God has given us the word of his grace to guard us, to keep us from savage wolves that would seek to destroy our Christian faith. Finally, in these verses, we see that the Lord gave Paul an excellent example, as an excellent example, of of one who lovingly and carefully watched over God's church. Paul spoke of his own example, as we mentioned, in verses 18 to 21. In verse 31, he says, he reminds them that night and day for three years, I admonished you with tears. And then in verses 33 to 38, we see that example highlighted again. So let me read those verses. He says, I have coveted no one's silver or gold or clothes, You yourselves know that these hands, speaking of his own hands, ministered to my own needs and to the men who were with me. In everything I showed you that by working hard in this manner, you must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he himself said is more blessed to give than to receive. When he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And they began to weep aloud and embraced Paul and repeatedly kissed him, grieving especially over the word which he had spoken that they would not see his face again. And they were accompanying him to the ship. One thing that false teachers often do is seek to get money from believers for themselves, to profit in that way. Paul points out, he says, I did the opposite. I did the opposite. He worked to support himself. That was a choice that he made to do that. He was trying to be an example and take away any... Any land or any position that somebody who would could use to try to criticize his ministry, and so as opposed to coveting material wealth, he focused on helping those who were weak, those who needed help. And he says, Jesus himself said, It's more blessed to give than to receive. You might know that that is not something we read verbatim in the gospels, though it is clearly something Jesus spoke of in general ways. But it, I think he also said that specific thing, and, uh, and Paul understood that, and I think Christ himself showed him that. But God promises a blessing when we give. He promises a blessing when we help, when we encourage others. Now, the closing scene of Paul with the Ephesian elders is when they kneel together in prayer. It's not hard to imagine some of the things that they would have prayed about. I'm sure Paul prayed for these men That the Spirit, knowing the Spirit has set them apart to shepherd this church, he prayed that they would faithfully guard the flock as well as guard, watch over their own lives as he just told them to do. He certainly committed the church of God to his safekeeping. Likewise, I'm sure the elders prayed for Paul as his ministry was going to continue. They would never see him again, but they know he's going to Jerusalem. They know it's going to get hard for him. Uh, they're not sure exactly what's happening there. It was a very emotional departure, ultimately, as they, uh, as they escorted and walked with Paul as he returned to the ship that he was traveling on. Paul is just a great example of one who carefully watched over the churches that the Lord enabled him to plant. He taught them the scriptures. He did not shy away from teaching the whole purpose of God. He knew that all of the scripture was profitable. He gave sober warnings He did all this out of love for the Lord, out of love for the people. And all this is evidence for how important the church is, ultimately, to God. The church that he purchased with his own blood. It's evidence also for the lengths the Lord goes to make sure that his church is actually cared for. He loves us. Lord, we thank you so much for your word. I thank you for the example of Paul that we see here. Just an example that is... um, it's just so helpful to see it. It's uh, intimidating sometimes as I look at it as someone who is a pastor and knowing it's far beyond the kind of things that I know that I have done. But, Lord, I just want to thank you for the example that we see in him. And, Lord, I want to thank you so much for the things that you have done just to show us, just to sort of the fact that we could even be your church, the fact that there is even a group meeting here today to hear the Scriptures, to, to praise, to encourage one another, to take the Lord's Supper together later, later. The fact that we're even doing that is because you have chosen us as your church. You have provided our salvation. You are the one responsible for that. We thank you so much for the blood of Jesus Christ that has paid the price for our sin and has completely accomplished every aspect of our salvation. Thank you so much for what you've done. Lord, help us to be faithful. Pray for those who are uh, elders in our church now presently, uh, that we would be people who would guard ourselves, watch over our own lives, and that you would also grant us what we need to be able to guard and watch over the church as a whole. Lord, I ask for each of us here that that you would cause each of us to see how important it is to guard our own walk with the Lord, to be careful, to be watchful, Lord, help us all to do that. There are so many things that are out there, so many people that can easily push us off in, the, in directions that are not healthy and can even be dangerous. Lord, I ask that you would guard us. I ask that you would truly keep us in your hand and not let us go. If you're one who's never put your faith in Jesus Christ, I would encourage you to, to receive Christ as your Lord and Savior. A prayer like this would be a way to start. Lord, I realize that I'm a sinner. I realize I have not lived the way you want me to live. I know I have not trusted you like you want me to trust you. I commit, I I admit my sin, but I want to receive Jesus Christ as the one who saves me and forgives me of that sin. I want to commit my life to him as the Lord and master of my life. If you want to talk in more detail about that commitment, you can make a note in your tear off. Those who are watching online can reach out to us through the website. It is the name of Jesus Christ. that we.